Welcome to the Indie Matters Podcast. It's the podcast of the Nevada Independent. I'm John Ralston, the editor of the Nevada Independent. Uh, we're joined today by the newly elected Attorney General of the State of Nevada, State Senator Aaron Ford. Uh, and two of my reporters are also here. Michelle Rendells and Riley Snyder are both here. Uh, this podcast, of, of course, you can find all over the place on the web. If there's a platform out there, we've, uh, we're have we on it now. We're on iTunes. We're on Google Play. We're on Stitcher. Where else are we, Riley? Do you know? Uh, I think those were all of them, John. Okay. See, <laughs> Riley's always testing my knowledge uh, of what's on the web. So, uh, uh, Senator Ford, welcome uh, to Indie Matters. Thank you for having me. Happy to be here. And congratulations on, on your victory. If people don't remember, it was so long ago now. Uh, <laughs> that election was not called until uh, actually November 7th in the wee hours uh, uh, of the morning. Uh, before I let uh, Riley and Michelle uh, jump in here, uh, Senator, I, I want to kind of just ask a general question here. This was a difficult race, I think, in, not just in that it was close, but it was a difficult race, I think, for you because it almost seemed like you were unprepared for what they were going to come after you on. They they, they found uh, 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 what, what, what might be called youthful indiscretions by some, some things, uh, arrests during college, all other kinds of things. But then the way they use those issues against you to make you seem unqualified to be the state's highest law enforcement officer, and maybe even, and I'm wondering what you think about this, there may even been, uh, 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 in case people don't know, you're African-American, a tinge of racism uh, to all of this. Uh, was that difficult for you? Were you one? prepared for it? Unprepared, no. Difficult, absolutely. Um, and I'm going to take the latter part first because the dog whistling was quite apparent. You don't have to take my word for it. Um, national media uh, have indicated that some of the commercials being run against me, one in particular, as I recall, was one of the most racist they had seen this entire cycle. Well, which commercial are you referring uh, it to was, so people it was, know? I, I believe it was the one that RAGA had put out. Um, That's a Republican Attorneys General Association. That's a national group. Right, right, right. And so, um, you know, looking at this objectively, people were able to see that um, there was a double standard going on here. Uh, there were people, speaking of RAGA, um, who are members of RAGA, who um, our current our current attorney general, for example, who was running for governor, had had comparable um, and arguably worse uh, instances of, 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 as you call, youthful indiscretions that uh, were overlooked when he was a candidate for attorney general and being overlooked even as a candidate for governor. And uh, my opponent um, opted to go even work for him, notwithstanding you know that pass. And so, uh, drawing the comparisons, there are a few differences between me and and uh, the current attorney general. I'm tall and he's short, and <laughs> maybe that's one of them. But but yeah, it was it was quite hurtful. Um, and it began, frankly, before I even had announced. Um, we saw caricatures of me on a website. I was taking my son on one of his college tours. Uh, we were at UCLA, um, and this was in July, right after session ended. I haven't even announced yet. And there was a website that had been put up um, with a uh, picture of me and one of my bow ties, um, a caricature of, of, of that. And the name of the site was Radical, AaronFord.com. And everyone knows where the association, Radical, associated with Islam and bow ties associated with the Nation of Islam. And it, it was, you know, quite apparent to me and several others who was already starting to see that this was, was taking place. And it was disappointing to see that it not only took place, but that it escalated throughout the entirety of the campaign. Um, so, you know, I, I was prepared for the dog whistling, frankly, because, I, you know, I had said that I would anticipated some what I call Willie Horton behavior <laughs> uh, in this campaign. But it was um, gross. 
to say the least. Well, I guess what I'd ask as a follow-up, and this is difficult, none of us sitting around this table knows what it's like to, 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 to be essentially a black man growing up in America, and you were subjected to, to, to racism dur during your youth. I know you worry about it uh, with your with your uh, uh, son. Uh, you, we've talked about that on previous uh, occasions. It's it's one of the reasons you got so involved in the body camera legislation right. and, and, and other kind of things. But where do you draw the line? I mean, you can... You can say some of that stuff was racist, and I'm not saying that you're wrong. On the other hand, wasn't it legitimate to say, what does this say about uh, Senator Ford, that he had these arrests, that, 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 that he did these things, that whether you're white or, 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 or black or Hispanic should have been legitimate issues? Where do you draw that line, I guess is yeah. what I'm wondering. Well, um, I, I think it's how it's used. And again, it's drawing a comparison. If they are, are disqualifying for me, when I was an 18-year-old walking on campus at Texas A&M University, walking on campus, walking home to my dorm room um, and having been arrested for public intoxication, then shouldn't it have been disqualifying for the current attorney general who had a DUI around that same time? Uh, if it's disqualifying that I had a speeding ticket that I forgot to pay, um, and, and then shouldn't it also be disqualifying for the current attorney general who had a 15-year-old speeding ticket, I think you uncovered or reported on at least, that it took him 15 years to pay? Um, shouldn't that be disqualifying? Uh, and, and so when you draw those distinctions and those comparisons, it becomes readily apparent to anyone, uh, and not just people like me who've, who've experienced this and who've lived this, that there was a racist tinge to uh, this, this, this campaign cycle. Um, and it's unfortunate. I am entirely grateful to the state of Nevada for uh, disregarding, discarding, and demonstrating to the rest of the world that we are beyond that nonsense, and they've elected someone who they know is going to put Nevada families first. All right, Michelle. So uh, one of the big things, you know, on the minds of people as it relates to the attorney general is, of course, uh, the the background checks. Um, you know, you've been a supporter of those. Uh, and there's been a lot of criticism of the current attorney general for his role uh, as it relates to the background checks. I think we've ultimately reported that, you know, it's not necessarily his uh, job to implement those background checks. But. What do you think you would do differently um, now that you're going to be attorney general in terms of, of getting that background check uh, law implemented? Well, um, implementing is one word. Enforcing is another. Uh, and I think it's the job of the attorney general to enforce the laws of the state to implement or, or to implement, not impede the will of the people, to use your phraseology there. So um, I begin with a position of yes, which is different than the current attorney general did. Um, it's no surprise that when he appears in commercials opposed to the uh, ballot initiative when, it was, when, it's, um, when it's on the ballot that he comes out and says he can't enforce it. Um, and so I begin from a position of yes. And I've said on the campaign trail, um, I've said since winning this election that I will work with anybody, whether it's the governor, the legislature, the federal government, um, police officers, whatever the case may be, to figure out a way to enforce this. And I've already, uh, I actually, in, in the event that I was unsuccessful, I had a BDR already prepared um, with the, at least reserved, not prepared, quite uh, prepared, but reserved as majority leader to uh, figure out what the holes were legislatively and try to fix those. I've already spoken with some of my uh, Senate colleagues, one in particular who's quite interested in, in helping with that. So we're going to figure out a way to get this done. Uh, and if it means, again, um, passing legislation that becomes effective uh, three years after, because that's, that's, the, that's the issue there, right? You can't really affect these things within three years of the passage. Uh, but we can set an effective date three years uh, out or three years from when it passed and, and have these things enforced. Uh, so uh, so that's, my, that's my position. Not to mention the fact that um, I also think there were 
um, avenues that were not entirely pursued um, by the attorney general's office. Some could argue that there's an interpretation. A uh, in the law, there is the saying that laws should be read to um, work together and not opposed to one another. And so there's an interpretation that should have meshed our current laws with the law as intended to be passed, um, and, and so, so such that the interpretation would have required, as a matter of ministerial duty, the federal government to do this. Um, there wasn't an effort on, the, you know, by our current attorney general to go to federal court to require that, and so that's that's an alternative as well. Are there other ways that you see yourself uh, getting involved in the gun violence issue as attorney general? I think the short answer is is, is absolutely. I mean, we have already been having roundtable discussions with um, uh, students, with parents, um, with people who um, suffered um, from the October 1 massacre uh, to figure out better, better ways to help curb the gun violence. Um, uh, gun safety uh, is, is an important issue in this state. It's an important issue nationally, obviously, uh, but particularly in this state, I, I intend to be as involved as I can to ensure that we have common sense gun legislation, gun safety legislation that doesn't inhibit someone to exercise a Second Amendment right um, who, who hasn't forfeited that right for one reason or another or who doesn't have the mental capacity to, if, to utilize that right appropriately. Um, but at the same time, um, have safe laws that protect the rest of our, our state. All right, Senator. So before we move on uh, to, to Riley uh, and change the subject, just want to make sure everyone's clear on it. You can't touch uh, uh, what, what was passed by the voters for three years uh, uh, legislatively, but maybe you could get someone to propose something that would trigger after three years. But I know you don't want to wait that long. I know a lot of legislators, a lot of people who voted for it don't want to wait that long. You mentioned going to federal court and other potential uh, remedies. It doesn't seem like there were any real conversations with the, with, with the feds or the FBI and, and whether this was possible or not. It was just decided by Adam Laxalt and Governor Sandoval, frankly, that this couldn't be implemented. Have you looked into what you can possibly do? Like explain what could be done in federal court and if there are any other avenues you could pursue so the background checks initiative could be implemented. Well, it would be a last recourse, the federal court approach, obviously. I mean, I think there are a number of interpretations out there that have been put forth that um, this is really more of a ministerial duty for the federal government because laws are supposed to be construed harmoniously uh, such that they, they make sense together and they can work together. Uh, and so, uh, you know, looking at that type of argument in federal court, obviously the, la the, arb the final arbiter of that argument would be the federal courts. And, um, you know, not being able, I wouldn't be able to handicap the, the strength of that type of argument. But at the end of the day, it's an avenue that, that I think had not been pursued and something that had probably not been seriously considered, uh, again, uh, in view of the fact that, um, the current attorney general had already indicated that he uh, was opposed to, to, to the idea in the first instance. Is it fair to say, though, that, that this may not be implemented for another three years? It may, it may, it may take that long? No, I, I don't think so. And, and I think um, the three-year time period started two years ago, two and a half years ago. So we're looking at – we'll have to figure out um, the exact date for the effective date of, of legislation, but it, it's right, not – Right, three years since it passed in exactly. 2016, I got That's it. That's right. So it still could – it still might take a year, but no longer than that. Yeah, I, and again, it may not take even a year at this point. We'll, we'll have to you know, just take a look at the timing of what's going on with that. Right. On a question one, Senator, and I apologize, I have to look through like four different microphones or yeah, stands yeah, yeah. To, to ask this question, but – the um, the issue that the attorney general's office had when this ballot question passed was essentially all their only role was to issue that AGO, attorney general's opinion, saying that this law as written was unenforceable because of this issue with the FBI not wanting to do the private party background checks that were required um, under the ballot initiative. So when you take office as attorney general, 
Do you have any plans to rescind that opinion or change that opinion of the office? And are you going to tell uh, local police departments who have been relying on that opinion to not enforce the law that your opinion and the AG's opinion has changed and they need to start enforcing it? Is that a route that you plan to take? The appropriate approach, in my view, is to get with the governor-elect and figure out how best we're going to proceed in this regard. There are, as I've indicated, a number of options. I'm trying to hide from behind this microphone, too. <laughs> but there are a number of options that we'll have to consider and proceed uh, you know, accordingly based on what our judgment says in, in, in that um, arena. So nothing's off the table relative to what we may be able to do in that regard. But we have the desire um, to get this implemented. And that's something we ran on. That's something that I voted for in 2013 with my then roommate, Justin Jones, passed the bill in the first place. So this isn't new to me. This isn't something that I'm bandwagoning on, if you will. This is something that's been important to me since I've been in the legislature, and we have every intention uh, and desire to get it implemented. One of the concerns that's been brought up by uh, opponents of this, and of course, they have a lot of concerns, but one is that um, the FBI's background check system does not include the full range of uh, criminal history that the states does. The state's current background check system, for people who don't know, is for uh, if you buy a gun from a licensed dealer. But question one and what we're talking about deals with uh, private party sales or transfers. So if I go on Craigslist and try and buy a gun, that's when this uh, ballot question seeked to address. So if there is a legislative answer, how would you be able to ensure that um, or find the funding to make sure that these private party sales or transfers of firearms meet the same level of uh, are using the same amount of criminal background checks and are as in-depth as those versus the federal system, which has a, a more limited set of uh, resources to draw on and to do those checks. Well, one of the benefits of being the immediate past Senate majority leader is that I have a relationship in the legislature um, and I understand the budget process. And I understand if, if it's such a request budgetarily is necessary to uh, put forward uh, next legislative session, then we'll be looking to do that as well. Again, um, the, the first step is to have a, a robust conversation with the governor-elect on um, what he foresees as, as his approach, um, how mine um, kind of meshes with that, and then we move together, um, you know, on the same, um, doing the same type of thing. One of the most uh, criticized moves of Attorney General Adam Laxalt was signing on to the DACA, uh, the suit that was against the expansion of the DACA program and the implementation of the DAPA program, which would have given uh, legal status to some of the parents of DREAMers. do you plan on signing on to any current lawsuits that are going on as it relates to preserving DACA or rescinding DACA? Uh, I will say this. Um, I have a differing opinion on um, some of the decisions the current AG has made relative to signing on or not signing on to particular legislation. And uh, what I've indicated is that I support our dreamers. I support DACA. Uh, and um, had I been the attorney general, I would have already signed on to support um, um, you know, the, their uh, ability to r- remain here. Um, and so we're going to look at all of these things, whether it's the um, the the bills that, or the legislation that he signs, pardon me, not legislation, but the law, the lawsuits that he signs on that undermine a woman's right to choose. We're going to look at that, uh, whether it's uh, not joining the lawsuit to defend the ACA in Texas. We're going to look at that as well. Uh, but again, um, one of the differences in approaches that I'm taking in my office is that I consult with the governor and the governor-elect before we make ultimate decisions. And at the end of the day, the governor and I have individual duties um, under the Constitution to do what we think is best for the be- um, for, for the improvement of our state. Um, and sometimes we may disagree, but it begins with a conversation, uh, and I'm going to have that conversation with the governor before making any final decisions on anything. 
one of the reasons why people criticize Adam Laxall for signing on to these uh, these amicus briefs in abortion cases was that, you know, Nevadans had voted in 1990 to approve, uh, basically enshrine right. Roe v. Wade into the state constitution. Uh, what's going to be your litmus test before you sign on to a law? You, you mentioned here you want to talk with the governor, mm-hmm. uh, but does it is it going to have anything to do with public opinion? My, my litmus test is the same one you've heard me talk about since you've known me since 2013, John. Um, and that is the legislation I've always looked at and the, the approaches I take is how does this affect Nevada families? What's our interest? Um, I want to know, um, do we have an interest in our Nevada families being protected uh, relative to what our Constitution protects, uh, whether, uh, you know, what, um, relative to what, what our statutes say, and then making a determination that does it make sense to join litigation? And it doesn't make sense, to, for example, to sign on to an amicus brief when we have enshrined protections of Roe v. Wade. So um, that, that is a quote unquote litmus test, to use your phrase again here. Uh, but it begins with first asking the question, how are Nevada families affected by the law, the legislation, the, uh, you know, the regulation? regulation, the rule, the government action. That's that's the, the initial question I'll be asking. You know, it's interesting because Michelle's questions and, and, and your answers raise kind of a seminal issue in, in, in that Adam Laxalt apparently thought that he was a, a, a duly elected constitutional officer. He didn't have to consult with the governor. He could go and sign on to the stuff. He could do whatever, whatever he wants. I don't think anybody who's ever been attorney general had that standard. However, what is the standard? In other words, uh, what if you and Steve Sisolak have a discussion and, and Steve Sisolak says, no, I don't think we should sign on to to this lawsuit or we should oppose uh, certain kinds of things. Why shouldn't that determine what you do? Who's your client? It may very well determine, and, and it does depend upon who the client is. If the client is an administrative agency, um, then that's different. If the client is, um, in a particular instance, the, 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 the people who live in this state under our Constitution, then, then that's different as well, right? Uh, and so ultimately, at the end of the day, as I've indicated, it begins with the discussion. Um, there is an acknowledgment that Governor Sisolak is going to, Governor Lex Sisolak is going to have his constitutional duty to uphold our Constitution and protect Nevadans. I have the same. Uh, and, you know, there will be occasion, I would imagine, maybe very few occasions, and I hope no occasions. But if there are disagreements, then, uh, you know, we will have to cross that bridge when we get to it. Because it, it's not, I mean, it's essentially if, when Adam Laxalt signed on to those amicus briefs in, in the abortion cases, he essentially was putting the state of Nevada's imprimatur onto that saying this is how the state of Nevada feels. No one thought it was Adam Laxalt. Just as if you do the same thing, Mm -hmm. even if you support dreamers, that really shouldn't necessarily, right? It should be what uh, what the governor thinks and and, and what the state thinks. And so I I guess what I'm wondering is the process too. There's some of the things clearly that Adam Laxalt did like suing over over DACA or signing that that you and probably the governor-elect don't think were right. Is there a process uh, to withdraw from from those amicus briefs to say we've changed our minds we don't want to be part of these lawsuits. Yeah, there is, and, and it's a part of the judicial process. And sometimes you will be allowed to withdraw. Sometimes you won't. And you know, it's just gonna, it just depends upon the jurisdiction. Depends upon what their requirements are. How long into how far into the litigation process something is. How early it is. I mean, it, you know, it, so it all depends. And me having practiced law for seventeen years, going back to your question about qualifications, <laughs> having practiced law in civil courts for seventeen years, uh, I understand that there are um, sometimes barriers to being able to do some things you want to do. But uh, you know, you got to look at those. Look at the processes and procedures and see what we can do to either 
insert ourselves into litigation or sometimes remove ourselves or extract ourselves from litigation. So that can be one of the first things you do then is, is to look into all of that? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, and we are already having conversations with the AG's office from relative to a transition uh, of, of responsibilities. And, you know, one of the things we're going to look at is, is the uh, list of litigation that we've already engaged in, um, what amicus briefs have been filed and things of that sort. So we'll be analyzing that. Uh, Senator, I'm curious. You mentioned this earlier, but you and Adam Waxholder are very different people and have very different approaches. Uh, if you're tall, he's not as tall. Mm-hmm. Um, but he, uh, in his role as attorney general, has put in place several structures in the office. And I'm just curious if you want to keep in place, such as the solicitor general position, his uh, federalism unit, which he used to uh, challenge a lot of Obama-era decisions. Are those things you would want to keep in place as attorney general? We're making that assessment right now. In fact, we're looking at the organizational chart. We're looking at the different structures that are out there. And uh, we're looking at what um, Catherine Cortez Maslow did. We're looking at what Frank Asuda del Papa did. You know, we're going to find what works best for the um, um, for, for the office and, and for what it is we're trying to get done. And some of that stuff we, we will retain. Some of that stuff you know, we may very well change. Are there things you can point out that the current attorney general uh, has done that you were pretty confident you'll keep, like work on the, the rape kit backlog, some of the stuff he's done on guardianships, um, the uh, like Office of Military Legal Aid? Or are those things you would be probably you'd safe to say you would keep in place? Yeah. I mean, um, I, I have been able to highlight a handful of things that I agree with him on. And the Office of Military Legal Assistance is one of those things. Uh, the rape kit backlog was something I was already working on um, and, and you know, was the co-sponsor of a bill that passed in 2017 that helped to expedite the processing of these uh, of these of these uh, uh, rape kits. And so, yeah, I mean, there are some some things that obviously, um, you know, have worked well that we're going to continue. The AG also announced uh, over summer that he was signing the state or bringing the state into litigation against several pharmaceutical companies related to their role in the opioid crisis. Are you going to continue on with that lawsuit? Do you have any plans to, to change that, or is that another one you're going to be reviewing um, as you take the office? The analysis is, is the same. I mean, we're going to have to take a look at where we are in the, in the, in the uh, procedural posture of those things and make it an analytical determination as to how we're going to proceed. Senator, you're currently a member, and I, I believe you will be also as Attorney General, a member of the Advisory Commission on the Administration of Justice. That's right. They're going through a process right now of evaluating the drivers of the prison population. Um, they've offered a few suggestions, I think, at their most recent meeting uh, on ways to reduce the prison population, perhaps relooking at the burglary statute. I know that came up last session. Um, or, or do things differently with parole. What do you see your role in, in terms of implementing uh, or carrying out and, and acting on the data that you guys have been shown as part of that committee? Yeah. Um, well, the, the, the first responsibility as a member of the committee, whether I'm in the Senate or as attorney general, that's going to remain the same, and that's to analyze it and to make informed decisions based on the information that we receive. It's no secret that I've been an advocate for criminal justice reform the entire time I've been in the state um, legislature. Uh, that's going to continue, and uh, I, I have run on that as uh, something very important and, and, and uh, integral to my campaign. So we're going to be—I believe my role is to ensure that we have a fair uh, and just criminal justice system, punish those who've made mistakes or made bad decisions, um, but also look at the underlying causes, and if they are for example, mental health issues, then let's use diversion courts like mental health courts to figure out a way uh, to divert them from the criminal justice system. If there is an underlying addiction issue, then let's use drug court. Um, um, let's use reentry um, courts to, to figure out ways to, um, uh, you know, to, to keep people from recidivating, if you will. And a lot of that costs, you know, costs money. And so utilizing settlement funds in a way that can support those types of programs uh, and diversionary tactics and, and understanding that, um, you know, there has to be 
um, uh, intention here. There has to be purposeful intent to create a better criminal justice system, and I'm um, determined to do that as well. One of your opponents, um, his main slogan was to create a safer Nevada. Do you feel that as attorney general, you would be able to accomplish that? Absolutely. And I just got through giving you a few examples of how you do that. I mean, it's one thing to say you want to say for Nevada, but um, proof is in the pudding. And as a legislator, I have... um, put forth legislation that makes it safe in Nevada. Uh, we have a pilot program operating right now in a, in a male prison and a female prison that is giving um, people who are about to exit the system um, either vocational training so they can get a job when they get out of jail and reduce the likelihood of them recidivating or um, getting college credit as CSN right now so that they can go on and pursue a, uh, an education and again reduce, reduce the ability of the likelihood of them recidivating. That is the best way to create a safer Nevada to ensure that those who've entered into the system don't return. Um, I shouldn't say the best because that's that's a good way. The, the best way is to be preventive um, and to ensure that there are opportunities out there for people to get uh, the assistance they need, whether it be uh, a better education. Uh, and legislatively, obviously, that's what that, that's what they do. Um, wraparound services and things of that sort. I mean, now you, you are kind of calling on my both legislative and, and attorney general um, uh, hats in this regard. And so I'm going to combine the answer, you know, to, to that effect as well. But but absolutely, uh, a safer Nevada is something that uh, is going to be accomplished through my office uh, under the programs that I'd already laid out. Uh, and, you know, I put out, you know, several um, um, policy papers over the course of the cycle. Not many of them got a lot of coverage, frankly. Uh, but, but those papers also help to de- de- determine how we have a safer Nevada, whether it's being safer in your workplace, or free from sexual harassment and discrimination, or in your communities relative to uh, criminal justice issues. And so, uh, yeah, you're looking at an attorney general who, who will uh, do accomplish exactly that. One thing that uh, your opponents brought up, including Raga and West Duncan in this campaign, was something that you said in the 2017 legislative session, which is that you believe incarcerated people should have the right to vote. That's true in, I think, two other states. Uh, do you still believe that, and, and why do you? That, that was, um, how, how best to say this, that, that was n- tongue-in-cheek of sorts. I think it was, may have been you, Michelle, who actually tweeted mm-hmm. uh, dur- during that particular hearing that I said that, and I sent you the correction of what I had actually said, and you rephrased that tweet. Let, let me back up and explain to you something. I'm from Dallas, Texas. I'm from the South. I'm an African-American male who's grown up in the South and whose parents and grandparents were denied the right to vote. The right to vote, to me, is one of the most sacrosanct constitutional rights that are out there. And I know the history of disenfranchisement. I know the history of removing the right to vote, and I know that Jim Crow had a lot to do with that. And so when I say that I think that the right to vote should never be removed, it's coming from that particular lens. Now, I was Senate Majority Leader when I did this, Riley, and if I were, if I wanted to make that the case, then I would have passed a law to do that. I could have made it part of the end bargaining, uh, you know, John, to 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 make us like Vermont and Maine, if you will. But that's not what I did. And in fact, the rest of the quote, Michelle, when you tweeted me, was that. But that's not what I'm doing. What I am doing is putting our state in its own place, such that we have the ability for folks to reintegrate back into society yet again uh, by giving them a chance to participate in society. And, and, and restoring their right to vote is integral to that type of reintegration. So. In context, people should be able to understand what my sentiment was from that regard. But, and, but maybe what – sorry to interrupt here, but may, maybe what they would think is you do believe this deeply. People can hear the passion in your voice when you talk about Jim Crow and, and, and family members who were denied the right to vote. 
Uh, maybe there is no context here except you would have done it, except you wanted to run for attorney general, you wanted to run for higher office, and it would have been politically fraught. So let's talk about do- that. Yeah, I mean, so, so, I mean, I'm just playing devil's advocate yeah. here, obviously, but I think that could be one evaluation. The only reason he's not following his true convictions, so to speak, is, <laughs> is, because, is because he wants to run for higher office. So let's talk about that. Okay. Look at my record. Look at what I promulgated and what I sponsored last session. If I was so concerned about how people were going to think about me, then would I have passed this bill that gave a pilot program to uh, incarcerated individuals to come out and get an education uh, or, or to go to work? Would I have sponsored any bill that dealt with um, re-enfranchising felons? Would I have done anything in the area of criminal justice reform if I was more concerned about a quote unquote future, a future that I haven't even determined in my own mind because I hadn't determined it as of July when I when they started dog whistling about me on the website. So I refute that. And I refute that nonsense. People need to look at my record and look at what I do. Um, many people know who I am and they know my heart and they know that it is not dictated by what's going to happen in the future. It's I'm living in the moment. I'm doing what I think my constituents have elected me to do, and I'm representing uh, a, a perspective that I think many people share. So uh, that was the context of that of that statement. And it was more, I, I said tongue-in-cheek, and that's not the right analogy, but it was it was more of a theoretical. Why theoretical, though, Senator? I mean, do you believe, I mean, and, and I can see an argument, and you kind of made one, why shouldn't prisoners be allowed to vote. They, it, it, you say it's the most sacrosanct rank we, uh, right that we have, or one of them, right. as Americans. Why shouldn't they be allowed to vote? Yeah. Look, that's an argument for another day. And at the end of the day, I think this. Um, children, um, people who are incarcerated, um, undocumented folks, um, people who don't have the right to vote are oftentimes ignored. I don't ignore them. My legislation seeks to help every single person living in this state get to the next level. Um, And a lot of people won't do that. A lot of people who are on my side of the aisle and on the other side of the aisle only care about those who can vote for them. That's not my approach. I think we all have dignity and that we all should have an ability to um, um, live live our life to the fullest here. And that's that's the basis and the genesis for my legislation in the past. You know, I I think it can be be seen as pejorative that, that you take political calculations into mind when you try to pass something, but sometimes you should probably. Maybe maybe you've just decided that this state is not ready for what Vermont and Maine do, that, 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 that the people of this state are not ready to hear a prominent statewide elected official, the highest law enforcement officer in the state, say, you know what, prisoners should vote. Maybe the state's just not ready for it. Maybe that's what you believe. You say it's a conversation for another day. Uh, I got you locked in a room now, so I'm making a conversation for today. Uh, I think I, I'm just telling you what my opinion is. Why isn't that a legitimate uh, argument to have out there as, for public debate? I've not said that it's not legitimate. Um, and in fact, when I gave the testimony, I said that, you know, if I had my druthers, we would be like Vermont and Maine. And I've given you the, the basis of that particular statement because of my uh, f- personal familial history and, and um, uh, concerns with voting. Um, but I continue that statement by saying, but that's not what I'm doing. I'm putting our state in its own um, uh, uh, category, if you will. Now, that bill ultimately didn't pass. Um, you know, Jason Frierson's bill is the one who ultimately went to the governor's desk, and and, and, and that's fine and dandy, and that's great. Uh, but Didn't know, go th- far enough, though, that you think, right? Oh, it, it went far enough fine. I mean, I, I was I was fine with that. Um, uh, you know, but this but, is a bill to restore felons' rights. That that's that yeah. we should be clear on that. Yeah, not, not, to to allow, not to allow uh, people to vote in prison. Right, 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 right. And and again. To say it didn't go far enough uh, belies the fact that my bill didn't go that far either. I didn't ask for ex-offenders to, uh, right. or for felons to get or prisoners to get the right to vote. 
There's a current suit going on against uh, Adam Laxalt, and it's brought by a long list of sex offenders um, who are suing against the implementation of the Adam Walsh Act. And this is um, a total paradigm change for how the state reports, the sex offenders have to report to the state. So they have to register many times for life as opposed to being able to ever get off that list. There's a huge category of a new category of people that are on the list. Um, and it's not based on their risk of reoffending. It's based on just black and white, what crime were they convicted of? You know, Adam Laxalt had put out a press release. He was proud that his office had prevailed and that the law was going to be implemented. It took effect in October after 10 years of legal battle. Do you have any problem with the implementation of the Adam Walsh Act? I don't have a problem per se. I, don't, I can't speak specifically to this litigation because this is yet an, uh, another example of me having to look at what's currently pending uh, and to make an analysis off of that. And that's probably um, obviously one of the top things on the list if it's if it's pending litigation that you're speaking of. One one issue uh, that Michelle's covered just a little bit uh, uh, for us is the is the issue of of pot, and and there have been reports. Now Jeff Sessions is gone now. Uh, there, uh, but but you know you never know what an administration m- might do. Uh, is it part of your role to say uh, since uh, marijuana is still a Schedule One drug, since theoretically uh, pot legalization is quote unquote not legal federally, is it your role as the state's uh, law, <laughs> highest law enforcement officer to say to the federal government, keep out? Yes, <laughs> and I've been saying this for a long time. Um, I, I believe the. In January or February or so, there was a press conference that myself, Senator Sega Bloom, and Congresswoman Titus had over at an establishment over off of uh, Flamingo. I can't think of the name of the establishment right now where I said exactly that. Uh, Riley, you mentioned the quote-unquote federalism unit that Laxalt brought up or, or made up in, in, in the AG's office. That unit should be used to, to, for exactly that type of purpose. We in our state have determined that we, we want to have legalized adult cannabis uh, um, usage in our state, and that's a federalist issue. Uh, and if the federal government wants to come in and try to tell us that we can't do it and undermine the 7,000 jobs that have been created, and that, that's probably an old number at this point, and the tens of millions of dollars in tax revenue that we've been able to receive to help our, our state with services, then uh, they're going to meet an attorney general's office under my administration that will fight them tooth and nail to protect that industry. Um, and, and that's my job. Is there anything you can do affirmatively, or would you have to wait uh, for the federal government to try to do something? Yeah, that, that's a good question, John. I mean, there, there are always, and I don't know if you're asking me legally speaking if there's something to do affirmatively. You, you know, we have these things called de- 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 declaratory actions that you can file in court to declare certain things here and there. That's not something that uh, would necessarily be the appropriate approach here, uh, but it's something obviously worthy of consideration if we anticipate something happening. I'm curious, Senator. There's a lot of thought. Again, we have to look through like four different microphones to talk to each other. Um, a lot of thought that Democratic attorney generals are like the the first and newest line of defense against the Trump administration and some of the things they've tried to do in terms of administrative actions and regulatory actions. Do you view yourself and you view the office in that way as a way to stop them from rolling back from the clean power plan? Um, a lot of the administration's decisions have been um, stopped or, or uh, stopped in court from action in, in Democratic attorney generals. I'm just curious if you think you're yeah. going to uh, fall into that. My job, as I said on the campaign trail, and as I've demonstrated throughout my entire tenure as a senator, is to look out for the better families first. That's my analysis. And we have seen Democratic attorneys general across the nation um, band together to push back on what they consider to be an attack on families in their respective states and across the nation. And it's not political or partisan, because if it were, we would be losing. They're winning. 
they're winning in court, uh, pushing back on federal administrative efforts to undermine, um, you know, the protections for 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 Nevadans and other people throughout the throughout our nation. Whether it's environmental issues, you know, whether it's the right for someone to be able to travel, um, you know, wh- wh- whatever the case may be. And so, uh, absolutely, I'm going to be looking at you know things that come out of D.C. Um, under this administration to ensure uh, that it doesn't violate. Um, my initial premise, which is, um, you know, undermining uh, Nevadans, whether it's our security or our constitutional rights or otherwise. I'm also curious, Senator, just uh, thinking uh, while while we're talking here, uh, one of the things that you brought up uh, quite often on the campaign trail was the support that Story County Sheriff Gerald Antonoro uh, had for your opponent, Wes Duncan, and for the current Attorney General, Adam Waxalt. Um, The AG's office investigated Mr. Antonoro, and it said there was nothing, uh, there were no charges they could file within the applicable statute of limitations. He's being investigated by Lodi police related to an alleged uh, rape that he set up there. Is there anything different, or would you want to reopen that investigation into that sheriff uh, once you take office? Yeah, I can't say one way or the other if I'm going to quote unquote reopen the investigation. It goes back to what I've said to you the entire interview so far is that I need to analyze and look at what's in the office so that I can make informed decisions on how to proceed with what's happened or what's not happened. Senator, correct me if I'm wrong, but in 2015, you opposed Marcy's law. Uh, then you came around in the 2017 session and you got behind Marcy's law. I imagine that as, and this is the Crime Victims Bill of Rights, so that it enshrines uh, a long list of victims' rights into the state constitution. Uh, I imagine that as Attorney General, you're going to have quite a seat at the table as we kind of flesh out uh, what Marcy's law means for the state. What concerns are you going to bring to bear on that discussion? What what considerations does the state need to be taking as we implement this this pretty big change to our constitution? Well, let's um, put the let's put it in context. I absolutely had concerns about Marcy's Law in 2015. Um, didn't think necessarily that the protections that were being uh, requested uh, via a constitutional amendment um, were necessary because we had statutory protections uh, already in place. Uh, it passed in 2015. 2017, the analysis was a little different. It was, um, do they undermine uh, other rights that are out there? Um, and also, is it is it ultimately okay for the people to decide? Remember, that, that that's, that's one of the questions here, is do we want the people to decide whether they want to amend their constitution to include protections uh, that Marcy's Law implemented? And so um, those two things weighed heavily on my mind in 2017, and that's why I supported it in 2017. Uh, what I'm going to be looking at from Marcy's Law perspective this is, uh, um, as Attorney General is best practices, imp- implementation issues that have been raised um, or experienced in other jurisdictions that have it, um, uh, and figuring out where the uh, pitfalls are um, uh, as well so that we can try to uh, avoid those on a going forward basis, whatever they may be. I just wanted to ask really quickly, Senator, one of the policy uh, plans you put out in 2017 had to do with uh, sexual harassment policies for state agencies. I did some reporting on this last year, and it's really striking to like learn that different state agencies just have a wide variety of policies. Same thing with municipal governments, local governments. Um, can you talk a little bit about your, your the plan that you had then and what you went to do as AG to standardize those and to make sure the consequences for violating those policies are, are uniform, like regardless of um, who the offender is? Yeah. Um, as with many issues out there, uh, the problem is dynamic. 
we live in a silver state, I say, but we don't have a silver bullet for many of our, of our problems. Uh, and one of the things we need to be doing is talking to experts in the field, uh, understanding uh, what businesses are doing out there from a best practice perspective, understanding what uh, our administrative agencies are doing, getting a good handle and grip on the processes that they have in place to uh, um, address those types of issues. Uh, and so we want to be, as Attorney General's office, a place of resource uh, in that regard, a place where we are also able to give advice on what the current state of the law is on how to prevent sexual harassment, um, how to redress sexual harassment, uh, and, and what to do um, from a employer perspective, but also in, in a, from a perspective in, in terms of helping uh, the survivor of harassment. Uh, and, and so those types of things we're, we're going to be looking to implement. Um, you know, the, the, the policy that we put out um, contemplated that we would have these conversations with, with business and industry, that we would have this conversation with organizations who work in the area, and that we would have this conversation with um, administrative agencies that already work in this area to ensure that we have the best practices available to our state. Do you think this would take the form of a, a BDR you would have, a bill draft request for the next legislative session? Would this be like a working group of various state agencies and interested actors to try and get everyone with a, a uniform policy for sexual harassment? Well, everything's on the board except that uh, the BDR issue, I don't know if you understand this or not, but um, attorney, the current attorney general has 28 BDRs allotted to him, and he's already used those up. I don't have any new BDRs allotted to me. And so I would have to be able to look at what he's already put out, and we're analyzing that now to see if some of these fixes can fit into these BDRs or, or work with my legislative colleagues to um, put forth a new BDR or a new bill that addresses issues that we think are, are necessary for a legislative fix. Not saying that there is a legislative fix necessary, but if there is, um, there are some constraints associated with what I can do as an incoming uh, attorney general in the 2019 session. Wait a second. I think this is something that, despite being the grizzled old man sitting sitting here, that I didn't even know. Are you saying that all of the bill draft requests put in by the current attorney general, who is about to be out of office in January, you can't just get rid of those and put in your own now? So the short answer is, I don't know how to answer that, John. Look. <laughs> yes or no would you, be good. You, you know the process, right? I mean, I thought I did, but I didn't there, know that this was part ways, of it. There are things that can be done within the context of the process. Like, so there's an NRS chapter, uh, Nevada Revised Statute chapter that a, a BDR or a bill may fall under. And if, if something that I want to do falls up under, up under the same chapter, if you will, but also fix, fits the description of the bill, um, then yes, maybe I can do something with that bill. Uh, but we are. I guess what I meant is just why don't all his BDRs just go away? He's um, not the attorney general that's, anymore. That's not what the law says. Well, there, that that is crazy. All right, just real quickly, a couple of things. Since Riley brought up the the, the Antonaro case, um, it, it reminds me that this at current attorney general's office has been very, very difficult to get information uh, out of. Uh, and there are two ways that that, that agencies uh, of of the state or local governments can approach the public records law. They can they can try to make it difficult. For, for the public uh, or it's conduit with the media to get stuff, or they can say, listen, if you're entitled to this, we're going to give it to you. Let me just get, ask you one, one, one question about the Antonaro thing. Would you be willing to say that that falls under the Public Records Act and the entire investigation that the attorney general says did not rise to the level of filing charges should be released to us? Shouldn't it? I don't know the answer to that, John. I need to analyze what's out there. I just don't know the answer to that, and I can't answer it right now. But I can say this. 
you, you've covered the legislature since I've been there, 2013. 2015, I was minority leader, um, and there was a, a change of process for media to get access to senators. Couldn't even come on the Senate floor, if you recall. 2017, I t- undertook uh, the, endi- the, the, the effort to restore, if you will, the relationship between at least um, uh, the Senate, but I know the, uh, um, the entire legislature with Jason Fryerson and I, we had weekly press meetings. Um, we didn't bar you from the Senate floor. Uh, we made efforts to ensure that there were opportunities for transparency, for communication between the media uh, and, and the legislative body as we operated. Um, that's my philosophy. And I intend to continue trying to have that type of uh, uh, open access, um, you know, to be sure. Stories come out we people don't agree with, but um, that's the nature of the business. And at the end of the day, um, I'm more about the transparency and people understanding what we're trying to do than I am about trying to be covert and hide things. So, so basically, I can send one of my reporters up there anytime and say, uh, can you let us in here and look at all your files and you'll let us do that. Is that correct? No. <laughs> <laughs> That's what I thought. That, go ahead, Michelle. You had something else? Um, wanted to ask about uh, the 287G agreement that a couple of our law enforcement agencies have with uh, ICE. So basically they're cooperating with ICE to help people as they get into the jail, potentially be referred to ICE custody and then held for longer while their immigration case is screened. You know, Washoe County Sheriff, I know both of both of those candidates had wanted to get rid of the agreement. Um, I'm not sure if there's similar appetite in Clark County at this point. Um, but you being active on this issue last session, are you going to push for any changes in in the way we we address that agreement? Uh, particularly one of the big concerns is that people that are only in jail for a traffic ticket right. are funneled straight into ICE custody. Well, two responses, um, and it's worth noting. Um, th- this issue um, was brought up by folks fear-mongering, folks race-baiting, uh, folks trying to pick communities against communities. Uh, Governor Sandoval, the Republican, and I agree on this as well. The sanctuary city issue is a non-issue in this state. We didn't have it, don't have it now. Um, and so uh, you know, I, I, I didn't view that as, as, as an issue worthy of, uh, of discussion in that regard. What we were trying to do was to ensure that state resources can be used for state issues. Um, Relative to this issue of those who have um, um, a traffic ticket, I know that there's current conversation about, and you're talking to someone who got a failure to appear for a traffic ticket when I was in college, right? Uh, It's not criminal um, in Maryland, as we found out, because the current attorney general didn't get get picked up for that, but it was criminal in Texas. So decriminalizing um, traffic violations uh, you know, for, for, you know, maybe something that that assists in this area as well. Um, there are several different ways, I think, to address it. I think that there are going to be people looking at several different ways to try to address it. And I'm going to be open to hearing what they have to say. Would you push any of those agencies for a policy change on because they have the discretion on whether they uh, honor an ice hold and let someone go into ICE custody. They have that discretion. They could say, I could draw the line at the traffic ticket and not send someone on a traffic violation. Would you Would you push them to change the way they do that? Well, I think, again, that the table, as set before us, is going to provide opportunities for a lot of discussion, uh, including legislation that decriminalizes traffic tickets. Um, and so if, if that's something that happens over the course of this legislative session, then that conversation is unnecessary. Uh, but um, conversation is, is remains important on a going forward basis to ensure that we have um, uh, an understanding about what is going to happen uh, and how we're going to proceed on a going forward basis. And um, one last question for me. Um, 
you know, Adam Laxalt really prided himself on his relationship with especially the sheriffs. He was endorsed by almost all of them Mm -hmm. in his race for governor. I don't think they endorsed you in that race. Most of them were were West Duncan uh, supporters. What what can you tell people about? Is there going to be a a solid working relationship um, under your administration in the same way that there was under the Adam Laxalt administration? Uh, campaign season um, presents difficulties sometimes. And uh, to be sure, uh, the um, sheriffs endorsed my opponent in this in this race. But to also be sure, I've had a relationship with these uh, sheriffs um, pre-existing this campaign. And I've worked with them to, for example, pass legislation that protects them on the job so that if they get targeted um, because they are first responders, uh, then the person who, who, who kills an officer because he's an officer or she's an officer is tantamount to a hate crime. Uh, and so those types of efforts that I've already undertaken, I think, are going to be beneficial to uh, working together with law enforcement uh, uh, to ensure that we uh, can do the best that we can to have a fair and just criminal justice system. Will the law enforcement summits continue? Absolutely. Riley, you good? I'm good. All right. So let me just wrap up with this because the, the question that Michelle brought up brought up something, and, and we're, you've, you've been very generous with your time, and we really appreciate it, uh, Senator. But uh, Wes Duncan and Adam Laxalt and Michael Roberson and Dean Heller, they all won by these huge landslides in rural Nevada. And, and it's almost like, again, we're two different states. The concept of one Nevada seems to be more uh, elusive than ever in some way. She, uh, Michelle mentioned the sheriffs. This happens in every race that I've covered since I got here. The rural sheriffs, are, they're mostly Republicans. They're going to announce, they're going to endorse the Republicans. Is there anything, I mean, you're going to be a prominent statewide official now. It would seem to me that it's just not good for this state to have this obvious urban-rural divide, which, by the way, is all across America, but was illustrated by, by the results. Is there anything that you can do in your current role to try to, or is, is, is it just we're just stuck with this? It's rural versus urban. Yeah, I don't believe we're stuck with it. I think um, we have to keep trying. And, and what I have done over the course of my legislative career is to purposefully put me uh, into areas where I have to talk about rural issues. I assign, I asked to be assigned to the Public Lands Committee so that I can visit rural Nevada and talk about water issues, for example, and talk about land issues. Uh, I chaired the Natural Resources Committee in 2013, which has a large uh, contingency of individuals from the rural areas who want legislation to protect what it is they're doing out there. Uh, so I have made myself familiar with issues in, in rural Nevada. Uh, I did a tour of rural Nevada. Uh, I've campaigned in rural Nevada. Uh, to be sure, I didn't win rural Nevada, but that does not mean that I'm going to stop my communication uh, with rural Nevada. In fact, um, there are several similarities that rural Nevada and urban Nevada have in, problem, uh, have in common, and that's, for example, the opioid crisis. So finding those commonalities, figure out, figuring out ways where our state as a whole can look to address a problem um, uh, from an AG's perspective, uh, is one of the ways that I intend to continue trying to establish a relationship, whether they vote for me or not. I mean, at the end of the day, voting is sacrosanct, and they do what they want to with it. But it, but but the person elected to these offices is beholden to the entire state. That's my philosophy, and that's how I'm going to act. Senator, again, uh, you've been very generous with your time. Uh, congratulations. Uh, uh, you'll be sworn in, I think, January 7th or 8th, something like that. January 7th, Jan- yes. January 7th. Thanks for coming on the Indy Matters podcast so soon after the election. I really thank you for appreciate it. This is great. Michelle and Riley, thank you for, for coming during your busy day. Get back to work a- a- after <laughs> this. Uh, uh, thanks for joining us on, on, on Indy Matters. I'm John Ralston, the editor of the Nevada Independent. As always, I want to thank uh, our wonderful hosts here at uh, KUNV and Sam 
keeps me on task uh, every one of these podcasts and tells me when I'm going on to going on too long. I really appreciate her help uh, on all of these podcasts, which you can find, as Riley tells me, all over the place: Google Play, iTunes, Stitcher. Uh, go on there, uh, subscribe, and rate us. And, of course, uh, I always want to finish by saying thank you to Joey Lovato, our fantastic producer of this podcast, who makes us all sound... Podcast smooth. Okay, at least two of the three are in podcast <laughs> I didn't smooth. Know, Someone man. doesn't listen to That's all right. You have a podcast smooth voice, Senator. You could have done it. Thanks to everyone uh, for listening. been a great discussion with the incoming uh, Attorney General. Thanks for joining us on Indie Matters. Indie Matters.